Hello and welcome to the latest in our special Innovation Forum podcast series following the COP26 Climate Conference in Glasgow with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me this time is campaigning group Mighty Earth's CEO, Glenn Horowitz, and we'll hear from him in a bit. Day two was the final day that the world leaders were present, and so there was a flurry of announcements before the politicians handed over to the negotiators. The big news was the confirmation of the deal to end deforestation by 2030, signed up to by 110 governments, representing 85% of the world's forests, including Brazil, Indonesia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Canada, Russia and China. The pledge comes with over $19 billion of public and private finance. Some of the funding will go to developing economies to restore damaged lands, fight wildfires and support indigenous communities. And a £1.1 billion fund is also to be established to specifically protect the Congo Basin. Stay listening for Glenn Horowitz's take on the deal. A COP itself, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the deal, calling for not only an end to deforestation, but for restoration. Something, of course, that can be very challenging. US President Joe Biden proposed a whole government approach to reduce the drivers of deforestation and create sustainable supply chains. In doing this, he stressed the importance of working in partnership with the people most impacted by deforestation, local communities and peoples. It was unfortunate then that a group of indigenous organisations and activists from the Amazon Basin, who had travelled to Glasgow, complained that they had not been involved in negotiations around the deal. The articulation of Brazil's indigenous population group said, We have not been heard. And they pointed out that in Brazil there are bills in the national parliament with the backing of the Bolsonaro government that allow for mining, deforestation and the use of indigenous lands for agriculture production. Deforestation in Brazil, of course, surged to a 12-year high in 2020. The other big announcement, as predicted by Mike Scott in yesterday's podcast, was an agreement fronted by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Joe Biden on cutting methane emissions. Involving more than 80 countries, they pledged to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030 based on 2020 levels. Von der Leyen described cutting methane as the lowest hanging fruit, and Biden referred to the deal as a game-changing commitment. A major thrust will be eliminating methane emissions from the fossil fuel sector, and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau committed to reducing methane emissions from the Canadian oil and gas sector by 75% on 2021 levels by 2030. The curbs are, he says, low cost. Other announcements include the Colombian President Ivan Duque's commitment to protect 30% of the nation's territory for nature by the end of 2022. Other countries, including the UK, have made 2030 the timeline for such commitments. And the US, India, UK and China are among the 40 countries that have agreed to collaborate on scaling up clean technology through worldwide standards and policies. The plan is that private sector investors will have certainty that markets will develop at scale in low and zero carbon technology. And the first sectors to be tackled are high emitting steel, road transport, agriculture, hydrogen and electricity generation. China's president, Xi Jinping, is one of the most notable absentees from Glasgow, of course, and it had emerged yesterday that his application to address the conference by video link had been turned down by the COP26 organisers, who have long argued for leaders to appear in person. The Chinese president was offered the option of supplying a written statement, which he provided, though it contained no new pledges. Moreover, China's lead negotiator reiterated opposition to the move to keeping temperatures within a 1.5 Celsius rise, saying that the 2 Celsius pathway should remain part of negotiations. Just before he set off to travel to Glasgow to attend the COP26 meetings, I caught up with Mighty Earth CEO and founder Glenn Horowitz to get his reaction to the deal on deforestation and why this one might succeed where others have failed. We talked about the chances of success at the conference and what good protesting looks like. 
Joining me today is Glenn Horowitz, who's CEO and founder of Mighty Earth. Welcome back to the podcast, Glenn. Thanks so much, Ian. It's good to be with you again. Okay, so what's your reaction to the 110 nation pledge at COP26 to end deforestation by 2030? Well, if you drill down into it, I think there's one big substantive piece of news, which is a pledge that now seems to be about $19 billion of funding for forests. And that's great news. It's a lot more than had been on the table previously. So we should absolutely celebrate that and give some credit to the UK government, Boris Johnson, Zach Goldsmith, who were putting nature at the center of their action plan when it comes to Glasgow. Having said that, it's not so much money that's going to undo the fundamental imbalance, what I call the energy fetish. Nature only gets something around 2% of total climate finance. And of course, climate finance as a whole is not big enough. Even though nature is 37% of the midterm solution to climate change, it's really being starved for resources. And when you look around the world and you see deforestation, you see the last remaining savannas being plowed under, it really in part is because of that lack of finance. Second, you know, 2030, the big question for me there, when I look at the companies like Cargill or Bungie or JBS talking about the 2030 deadline for deforestation, why do they need nine more years to keep the bulldozers running? There are well over 1 billion acres of previously degraded lands across the tropics where you can grow crops, raise livestock without threatening native ecosystems. Why not deforest there? They don't need this this amount of time to do it. And so I think on the one hand, it's very exciting to get the funding. On the other hand, the deadline is too weak. Of course, Cargill, Bungie and the rest aren't here to defend themselves, but your point was well made. Yeah, it's interesting about the funding, isn't it? Because we were just talking about this. It was $12 billion and now the BBC are saying it's $19.2 billion. So there's an indication yeah. that there seems to be a real appetite for this financing to be found and to be put into action. Absolutely. And our best friend very often in this work is momentum. And clearly there's momentum for financing here today. So we'll have to see where all of it is coming. If it's coming from governments or the private sector, I think that might redress one of the imbalances in the early pledges. More than $2 billion was coming just from philanthropy. That's great for philanthropy, but it also means that charity was bearing a kind of disproportionate share of the burden. It shouldn't fall entirely on charities to do this. What do you think is different this time? We've talked about the financing, but I mean, we had 2020 zero deforestation pledges that everybody missed. Is it all about the funding for 2030 or are there other factors that make you think that this time it will be different? The big new thing is the money. I personally have been burned by these 2020 pledges. In 2014, I stood with CEO of Cargill and helped negotiate their pledge to end all deforestation across commodities by 2020, which is part of the New York Declaration that many other companies signed on to as well. And I don't think the New York Declaration was entirely a failure. The palm oil industry, not entirely because of the pledge, that was more of an indicator of it, but they did actually dramatically reduce deforestation. Deforestation for palm oil has gone down by more than 90%. It has contributed to the lowest levels of deforestation in Indonesia in more than 30 years. So that's a success story and one I think we should celebrate. There's a lot more to do, but it's good news. Similarly, in other Southeast Asian commodities like rubber, pulp and paper, also, you know, lots more to do, but dramatic declines in deforestation. Where we have not seen progress is in the meat industry, where if anything, deforestation has continued to go up. And that is where I have this great disappointment that they're still talking about 2030 when many of those companies pledged to eliminate deforestation by the end of 2020. 
Certainly on a national level, I mean, I was looking at the kind of countries that have signed up. So you've got Canada, Brazil, Russia, China, Indonesia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you've got the big countries that you want to see on yeah. that list making that pledge. It remains to be seen whether the likes of Brazil will, you know, how they will meet that and how the beef sector will cope with this in the future. But there are a lot of reasons for optimism this time, for sure. Yeah, I want to be. And I would just say we saw some industries do it during those 2014 pledges and some companies do it and some governments take it seriously but not others. I can't say I'm super optimistic as long as Bolsonaro is president that Brazil is going to actually drive a decrease in deforestation when he's gone in totally the opposite direction since entering office. Maybe we're seeing the end of Bolsonaro, the end game for Bolsonaro, who knows. What else are you looking for over the coming days at COP? One of the things that we're trying to drive is actually concrete commitments from the private sector on deforestation, particularly when it comes to meat. We're coming in with some momentum, and this has not been widely reported, but more than a dozen major European-based supermarkets, including Ajo, Del Hayes, Tesco, Sainsbury, Little, and others, have pledged not to buy from any company that engaged in deforestation after August 2020. We've been working at Mighty Earth for more than five years to get this kind of commitment. The rubber is going to hit the road when it comes to actual implementation. There are animal feed and meat companies that have not met that standard and have continued to deforest since August 2020. The test for the supermarkets is, are they going to actually change their supply chain, cut off contracts in response to this? They have the commitments to do it now, which is a big step forward. But the big test is when it comes to commercial engagement. What we are going to be doing to make sure it happens is continuing our rapid response satellite monitoring project where we file alerts with the major supermarkets now, in addition to the feed traders and cattle companies. And when we find deforestation, we're going to say, this is in your supply chain, it's time to act on it. With these policies in place, there's actually grounds for them to do so. That is the exact process that drove a lot of progress in the palm oil industry. So we hope we can replicate it in meat. Are you getting the sense that something they really want to do now, they accept that they simply can't have deforestation in any other supply chains? And whilst it's very difficult to eliminate it, their commitment there is that that's the end route for them. That's where they want to get to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this should be the low-hanging fruit of protein sustainability is stopping deforestation. As I said, there are 1.6 billion acres in Latin America alone where you can expand agriculture which, without threatening native ecosystems. So they know that and they've been making increasingly urgent pleas for the last several years to the big feed traders and meat companies to stop deforestation. Unfortunately, the meat companies, several of them have defied those calls. And so they've grown increasingly frustrated. So they've now finally made these commitments to only source from suppliers who have a more sustainable track record. I hope that's a pretty strong commercial incentive to the soy companies, to the cattle companies to actually provide meat that's free of deforestation. There's a lot of other things that the whole meat supply chain should be doing to change the protein industry, shifting to regenerative agriculture practices, and ultimately shifting to more plant-based protein cultivated meat, which promises to dramatically lower the environmental footprint of the protein that we eat. It was interesting. Rob Cameron from Nestle was on Newsnight in the UK, one of the BBC's late night news shows, talking about regenerative agriculture last night. I almost fell off my chair. It was extraordinary to think that we're at the stage where the likes of Nestle are on that sort of show talking about regen agri. It was great to see. On Monday, Greta Thunberg stood outside COP and was saying that the politicians inside were just pretending and that it's protesters that show leadership. So, Glenn, you're a protester. Do you agree with her? <laughs> to a great extent, yes. I mean, I don't want to underestimate the hard work that the governments have, at least the governments that are serious about acting on climate change. And there are several of them. And I am very, very pleased to include in that number, the US government, which is not perfect, has lots more to do. 
But you know, Biden is taking serious action when it comes to climate. He just made a big methane announcement on regulation today. Across the board, his administration is looking to do the most it politically and technically can to act on climate. There's huge political limitations in the United States on that right now. Our society is polarized. Our Congress is sharply divided. But I do think that Biden is pushing forward a lot of what can be done. You know, I have more suggestions of what they could do, but I think it is important to recognize that they are providing significant leadership here. In addition, you know, Europe has now a strong track record over decades of dramatically reducing emissions. The big question, though, is about some of the countries that you mentioned. You know, what is Brazil going to do? What are other Latin American countries like Bolivia, which also have high rates of deforestation, going to do primarily for the meat industry? We've seen Indonesia's deforestation decline, but we're worried with Indonesia and Malaysia about government policies that could threaten to undo that progress. I think it's just as for companies, it's about enforcement and implementation. The same is going to be true for countries. One of the fascinating policy mechanisms that's increasingly being discussed is bans on import of deforestation-linked goods. I think that's something that we're working on in Europe, the United States, and the UK. None of those policies have actually gone into force yet, but they do seem to have significant momentum. That could be a powerful incentive for some of the developing countries to actually take advantage of the very low-cost opportunities they have to break the link between deforestation and agriculture. Second, beyond that, there's issues like biofuel subsidies and finance, and we also need progress on those. There's certainly still a lot of progress required, obviously, but it does feel that the uh, COP26 meetings have got off to a good start. And I'm sure that lots of companies and governments will be glad to hear that you've still got some suggestions. That's good to hear. But Glenn Horowitz, thanks very much indeed, and hopefully see you in Glasgow later in the week. Great. Thank you. Yes, likewise. Take care. And my thanks to Glenn for his time. Wrapping up the two-day leaders event at COP, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that he was cautiously optimistic about progress, but warned of there being a long way to go. He highlighted that when the UK had been selected to host COP26, only 1% of the global economy had pledged to improve on its Paris obligations. It is now 80%. Closing his remarks, he pointed out to delegates that as the leaders left the stage and the serious negotiating began, the eyes of the world will now be on the COP process to deliver success. Today, Wednesday, is Finance Day. The UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, will provide an update on climate finance, channeling funds from rich countries to poorer ones to help them cut emissions and adapt to the impacts of climate change. And UN Special Envoy and former Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, will talk about the steps the global financial sector is taking to help the world's economy decarbonise. And I'll be back with more news and views from COP at the same time tomorrow. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>